You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, to Exodus 23. Our attention this afternoon will be on the ninth commandment, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's in that connection that we read together from Exodus 23, the first nine verses. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone else who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. Thus far, our reading from the Old Testament, from the law as given in Exodus, and would turn out to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4, the verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you who were called to one hope were called when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it, This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 43 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is required in the ninth commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, 
speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we sang together Psalm 119, stanza 65, where we sang, Now let my lips run over with your praise, and then later we sang, My tongue shall sing a joyful anthem race. It's with our lips and with our tongue that we express our love for God. And as the ninth commandment teaches us also, it's with our lips and with our tongue, we can express our love to our neighbor as well. And that's going to have our attention this afternoon. However, since the theme, love your neighbor with your lips, or love your neighbor with your tongue, would be open to misinterpretation, this afternoon we'll consider the 43rd Lord's Day and the Ninth Commandment under the theme, love your neighbor with your words. We'll consider the meaning of this commandment, the focus, that would more properly be the focuses or the foci, if you want to be correct, of this command, and then finally the opportunity within this command. So, love your neighbor with your words, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. As we've been doing with the last number of commands, we'll do again this afternoon, that is, we'll zoom in onto what particularly this commandment is speaking about, and then we'll open up the zoom a little wider to see what else is encompassed under this command. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as you'll probably recognize by those words in themselves, this commandment is focused on the context of a courtroom. This command, in its narrowest sense, finds us in the courtroom, where testimony is given under oath with respect to one's neighbor. A false testimony doesn't need much explanation. It's testimony that is not true. It's testimony that does not align with the truth. And it may have a malicious intent. You can testify falsely in order to harm someone else. But you can also testify falsely out of fear for yourself. You don't want to say the truth because you're afraid of the repercussions for yourself. What you say may be false by what you said. And it may be false by what you didn't say what you conveniently neglected to leave out of your testimony. In all these ways, testimony can be false. False testimony is that which is given by a witness which doesn't align with what they know to be true. This was extremely important for the Israelites that they would be a people of the truth, and that they would not bear false testimony against their neighbor. And that's because their whole justice system was founded upon the truthfulness of witnesses. Our courts use DNA evidence, we use crime scene investigation, forensic evidence, and all sorts of other things. The courts in the times of 
of the Torah, the times of Moses, used the testimony of witnesses, especially in capital cases. Numbers 35, verse 30. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So it did not matter what sort of other evidence you had. No one was to be put to death unless there were two or three witnesses to the crime. It was extremely important that the Israelites were people who spoke the truth. And because of this, there are strong warnings in, in God's law against bearing false witness or by, or even being a silent bystander. For example, Leviticus 5 verse 1. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. Not only were you to speak the truth, but you were called upon to speak up, to not be silent when you knew what the truth was. And so the point would have been driven home over and over and over again for the Israelites as they held their their court in public at the city gates. That's where the elders sat. That's where they held court. It was a public gathering. And so it would have been driven home over and over and over again to the people of God. Your words are valuable and weighty. The testimony that you give regarding your neighbor is weighty. It's a heavy thing. It needs to be taken seriously so that you do not end up, by what you do or by what you don't do, bringing harm upon your neighbor. And so this law is, first of all, speaking about this legal context, this courtroom context, but it's it's wider as well. In forbidding false testimony in the courts, it also includes all false testimony. Exodus 23 verse 1 says, don't spread false reports about your neighbor. And the idea is that in spreading false reports, you may cause your neighbor to come into court, in which case they would have to defend themselves against what was false in the first place. And of course, there is Leviticus 19 verse 11, where the matter is stated simply, do not lie. Do not lie, period. In fact, this commandment forbids all unnecessary harming of your neighbor's reputation through words. We understand, of course, that if the law called people to bear true testimony against their neighbor, that if they knew that something was true about their neighbor, they would need to say that in court, even if it caused their neighbor's reputation harm. If they saw this person murder, they would need to give testimony to that. But this command forbids all unnecessary harming of a neighbor's reputation through words. Again, Exodus 23, don't spread false reports. Don't harm your neighbor's reputation in this way. Leviticus 19 verse 16, don't go about spreading slander among your people. Remember the word from Psalm 15, about the person who walks all over there under in secrecy, spreading lies about others. We're called not to do that. Now notice about this command that it's particularly focused on your neighbor. On your neighbor. 
It's the commandment that the first one to speak the loudest about our relationships with those closest to us, especially among the few that have preceded it. Murder, adultery and stealing. Murder, adultery and stealing are easier to do if the person against whom you're doing it is not known to you. The further they are away from you, the the easier it is, of course, to kill them, to steal from them and to commit adultery. With this command, spreading false reports, it's easier, it's more tempting the closer the relationship. It's more tempting and it's more destructive the closer the relationship. And that's what makes this commandment particularly applicable for us in the church. Because we're our community and we're a very close community. The tighter the community, the easier it is to destroy each other with our words. The tighter the community, the harder it is to, re- to reverse the damage done by slander and by lies. The tighter the community, the juicier the gossip, and the quicker the judgments that follow when we hear something about our neighbor. And so this command has particular focus upon us in the church where we live in close community. A beautiful thing, but also one that has great temptation to do harm. And so in court and everywhere else, as the catechism says, is precisely what this command means. We serve the God of truth who calls us to speak the truth, whether that's under oath in court or whether that's at the supper table, or whether that's at the coffee shop with our friend. The closer the relationships, the more important and valuable our words and the truth that they contain become, and the more potential for harm they have. And God in his word shows us what he, uh, how he looks upon the breaking of this command. Proverbs, I don't have the reference here, but in Proverbs it says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Majority of those have to do with using our words to harm our neighbor. And Proverbs 12, verse 22 says it concisely, shortly, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. So that's the meaning of this command as we see it comprehends court, but all of our relationships, especially our closer ones. Now you might think that having said this, this is the focus of our command. That the focus of this command is our neighbor. That that's where this command would have us turn our attention to our neighbor and to their good. Well, yes, we will turn our attention there. But the focus of this command is first of all, not with our neighbor, but with ourselves. 
We ought to think not first of our neighbor when considering this command, but what this command says to ourselves and to our own hearts. This one cuts deeper than the relationships that we have even with our neighbors. It goes to our hearts and to the relationship that we have with God. In John 8, our Lord Jesus, in a striking passage, reveals something of the character of lying. He's in a dialogue with the Jews in this chapter, and the Jews are accusing Jesus of bearing false testimony. They say, we can't believe you because you're the only one testifying to who you are and to what you've come to do. And Jesus says, that's not true. My father also testifies to me. And then he lays down this charge against the Jews in chapter 8, verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own. He sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? But you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth because the truth was not in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And so the root of lying is with the root of sin itself. Satan was the first one to lie when he cast doubt on the truthfulness of God, when he said to Eve, did God really say, did God really say you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or from any tree in the garden? And then once Eve took the bait and he told her a bold-faced lie, you will not surely die for God knows of it when you go God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil talk about the destructiveness of a lie through the lie the whole human race was cast into condemnation and sin and so before even swallowing the fruit we swallowed the lie and became thereby children of condemnation, children of the devil. Apostle, the Apostle Paul reveals the weight of a lie in Romans 1 verse 25 as well. In rejecting God, he says, we embrace the lie. Romans 1 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It is when we turn away from the true God that we embrace and worship the lie. When we are lying, when we are in lies, we are not worshiping God. God is a God of truth. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. And so, brothers and sisters, this command focuses, first of all, upon our hearts. It teaches us to recognize where our hearts are. Lying is about our hearts, and lying is about who our hearts are set upon worshiping. Cannot worship God with a lie. 
So that's the one focus of this commandment. But there is another focus of this commandment, and that's the grace of God. The grace of God is expressed in the faithfulness of God to his own word. If if the one focus is the deceit and the lie that lives even within us, and the other focus is the grace of God that lives in his truth, because he is the God of truth. He is 100% truthful and 100% faithful. He does not lie. I believe it's the prophet Jeremiah who says, is God a man that he should lie? Lying is characteristic of men fallen in sin. God does not lie. The grace of God is expressed in his truthfulness when he expressed his promise of a savior to Adam and Eve after they had fallen into sin. When he showed his faithfulness to his covenant even after his people had swallowed the lie and worshipped false gods. When he sent Jesus Christ into the world to live and to die for the truth. For the salvation of those who had fallen in the lie. When Jesus Christ came and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He was not lying. He was telling the truth. His life was one lived in the truth. In perfect honesty. With perfect regard for the reputation of his neighbor. That means he didn't use his tongue to harm his neighbor. He never spoke falsely or maliciously. Yes, if you read the Gospels, you'll know that he had sharp words for some. Particularly those who should have known better. Those who were learned and well-respected within the community. He had sharp words for them. But even those sharp words were not intended to destroy but rather they were rebukes intended to discipline and cause repentance. And when his words were soft, they were spoken to those who were already feeling crushed under the weight of their sin. They did not need a harsh rebuke. They needed a soft word. They needed encouragement. And the Lord gave that in his commitment to the truth. He lived to restore the dignity of his neighbor. And he used his mouth for that. As he lived on this earth for three years, he used his mouth to restore the dignity of his neighbor and to communicate the truthfulness of his father. So we see the grace of God at work in him. But that is not all. Because his passion, his love for his neighbor and for God led him to the cross. And think about how he went to the cross. What was it that drove him there? Was it not the lips of a trusted friend who betrayed him? Was it not the testimony of two false witnesses who accused him of sin, even when he had not sinned? He was repeatedly slandered, and even his closest friends would not stand up for him at his trial and speak the truth. It was the lie that drove him to the cross. And there, under the weight of false testimony and lies and slander, he was crucified. And what did they ultimately accuse him of? They accused him of lying. They said he's a liar. He claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. And that's blasphemy. He's lying. And so they sent him to his death. And so the Lord Jesus Christ died. As a liar. He was judged 
by his father for our sake as a liar, as a gossip, as a slanderer. He bore the weight of God's judgment. God hates a lying lip. And God carried out that judgment upon him on the cross so that we could be set free. So that we could be set free. That's why Jesus Christ bore that slander. That's why he was condemned to death. That's why he was judged as a liar. So that we could be set free. So that our lies and slanders and gossip could be put upon him. And so that he could make atonement for it. And he nailed it to the cross and bore the judgment of God. And having set us free from the lie, brothers and sisters, now what Jesus Christ is doing within his body, the church, is building a community of truth. Where the truth is spoken in love. And where hearts are more and more inclined not to harm our neighbor, but to do them good with our words. To build them up, to support them, to care for them, and to teach them in the truth. And so we consider finally the opportunity within this command. The first opportunity that we have with this command is with respect to the truth, that we can love the truth. We've been set free from the lie that we might love the truth. Through his great sacrifice, Jesus Christ has set us free from the lie and from every reason that we might have to lie. Why is it that we lie? Why is it that we lie? Isn't it out of a sense of self-sufficiency, self-protection, so we can stop harm from coming to ourselves, or so that we can get one up on someone else? Isn't it out of fear? Isn't it out of malice? Aren't these the reasons why we lie? But Jesus Christ has taken away our need for self-sufficiency and self-protection. He has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He's restored us to God. We are safe. We are secure. We have no reason to lie. He's restored us to God so that nothing can separate us from God's love. And so will we lie to save our comfort or to save our reputation or to save our popularity? Your life has already been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You're freed from the need to lie and empowered to love the truth. And so those who Love God must love the truth, internalize the truth, and confess the truth. Do you want to fend off the lie? Do you want to keep the lie away from you? Do you want to more and more become people of the truth? Then you need to take in God's truth. You need to go to God's word. That's where his, his truth is spoken You need to delight yourself in God's word. Drink it up, learn it, study it, and speak it to your heart. It's quite a simple concept, really. Where does God most clearly display his character? Where does God most clearly teach us about himself? Where does God show us the truth? It's in his word. And so as you grow in God's word, you come more and more to understand God. And God's truth. So that you can delight in it. 
so that you can love it. Love God's truth. Love God by loving God's truth. And so that's the first opportunity that we have. And the second opportunity is to honor God by loving the truth with our neighbor. The second greatest command is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this ninth commandment has huge practical implications for how positively we can love our neighbor. If you consider that we have the greatest opportunity to destroy reputations with those who are closest to us, it also is true that we have the greatest opportunity to show love and to build up also with those who are closest to us. How do we do this? In many ways. We'll mention a few relevant ones. And one is that we do this by being trustworthy with the words of others. Proverbs 11 verse 13 says that a gossip, gossip is bearing false testimony, as we learn in Lord's Day 43. Proverbs 11 says that a gossip betrays a confidence. A gossip betrays a secret that someone else has told them, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. So this is a, a simple and tremendously powerful way of loving each other. How much hurt among the community of God's people would not be spared if we just understood that a word shared in confidence is not a juicy morsel to be spread around to all our friends, but that it's a precious gift to be kept in confidence between us and them, that it's not ours to share with others but that we ought to keep it to ourselves. A gossip betrays a confidence. A trustworthy man keeps a secret. As elders and deacons, we talk a lot about confidence, about keeping these secrets for the good of our neighbor. When we are doing the training for the Stephen mentors, we talked a lot about confidence, about keeping confidence, about holding secrets for the good of our neighbors. As God's people altogether, we need to talk a lot about keeping confidence, about not sharing that tidbit of information, keeping it between us and the person who has told it to us. This is a tremendous way to love your neighbor. It's an incredibly practical way to love your neighbor. And so that's one. Another way that we can love our neighbor within the scope of this command is by withholding judgment and being gracious in our estimation of others. If lying is judging rashly without evidence, then speaking the truth is avoiding these rash judgments. You may know something about someone else, and you may think that that gives you every reason to condemn them, But you probably don't know the whole story. You probably don't have reason to condemn them. You probably have every reason, in fact, to be gracious in your estimation of them. And to do what you can with what you know to uphold their honor and reputation with yourself and those around you. Judge not and love your neighbor by keeping that judgment out of your heart and out of your words. Tremendous way to love our neighbor. How else can we do this? We can do this by speaking the truth to our neighbor 
in loving rebuke and correction. We need to love the truth. And there's a time to speak the truth to our neighbor in a way that upholds their honor and reputation. Now, you may think that speaking the truth in love means that you have the right to go around and correct everyone who errs, but that is not speaking the truth in love. Again, the Proverbs say, whoever rebukes a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Instead, we're called to choose our words wisely and to find the right time to speak the truth in love. Consider another proverb, 25 verse 1. A word aptly spoken is like apples of good in settings of silver. The rebuke of a wise man is a precious thing. Yes, this requires wisdom. Yes, it's not the easiest way to show love. Who wants to rebuke their neighbor? Who wants to correct them? But those who love the truth are going to do that in order to uphold the honor and reputation of their neighbor in the right context, with carefully chosen words to speak the truth in love. And how many other ways aren't there to love our neighbor as ourselves? Quite simply, expressing our love for our neighbor, speaking well of them, encouraging them in meaningful ways, joining with them in prayer and praise and confession. The church of Jesus Christ is where a thousand tongues are loosed to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God most of all. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, we are fulfilling the calling that Jesus Christ has given us as church. We are fulfilling the calling that Jesus Christ has given us as his church. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, which we read together. It's a beautiful passage to finish with. There Paul says that the grace of Jesus Christ has been given us, each one of us, and that through the the work of the office bearers, the church is becoming mature. And then he says in verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. As we learn more and more to speak the truth in love, we grow up into Christ. We grow up in our maturity. We grow stronger as the body of Christ, as each supporting ligament, as Paul says, is joined together to make the whole thing stronger in love. And so the maturity of the church is expressed as we speak to one another in love. And when we do so, we grow and become stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ as a body, fulfilling his purpose within us. Loving God, loving our neighbor, to the glory of our Father in heaven. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.